0: Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and this is another episode of the Long Run Archives with my co host, Brett Hornig. We talk about some of our takeaways from Black Canyon prize money and professional support in the sport, emerging storylines for Western states, live streaming thoughts, the future of pacers and crew at races, and which sports outside of trail running produce the best athletes for Ultra. One thing to note, we did have a bit of construction going on during the recording of the episode, and a fair bit of editing was required. So you may notice different sound levels and other things in parts of the episode, but uh, the conversation stayed intact. It's quality, it's engaging from start to finish, and we think you'll enjoy it. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by a few sponsors. First, Rabbit. Rabbit makes the best apparel in our sport, period. Use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order there. Second, HVMN. HVMN makes exogenous ketones, which are an excellent fuel source for training and racing in our sport. Use code SINGLETRACK20 on their website for 20% off your next order. And finally, trails and tarmac. Your dreams are not that far away. Their coaching team, led by Brett Hornig, can take your running to the next level. And having personally worked with them for six years, I can tell you it's gonna feel good when you do something you didn't know you could do. So head over to trailsintarmac.com backslash get dash in dash touch, which is also linked in the show notes, and mention single track to receive one hundred and twenty dollars off your first three months of coaching. With that, let's get started. All right, we're back with the tenth edition of the Long Run Archives, whole slate of topics to address today. Some addressing the recent weekend at the Black Canyon 100K, some topics that uh, we've just had on the docket for quite some time that we're ready to address. One question that I want to ask you, Brett, before we dive in, did you ever think we would make it 10 episodes into the Long Run Archives?
1: If I'm being fully honest, I 100% thought we did. We would. I agree. I knew it was a good idea, and I, I I figured whether or not anyone listened to these, we probably would have recorded 10 of them. Just because we both enjoy recording these so much. And I mean, it's really cool that other people also enjoy listening to us, you know, banter and ramble about uh, current topics in running, whether or not they are actually important. I think it provides a really nice break to the, uh, I don't know, the, the structural norm of the usual topics that get talked about in ultra running, which is, you know, largely I, I mean it's it's mostly learning about the runners in the sport like it's mostly learning about people's stories um and you don't hear too much on like the you know like a form of like a podcast like this about like some of the other random things that everyone's actually gossiping
0: about right yeah and I can't quite prove it because podcast analytics aren't super sophisticated yet, but I have a strong hunch. That I think I'm going to hang on with for at least the next few years that trail running fans are clamoring for more talk show, more radio type banter. And I think there's a reason, you know, you and I enjoy this format and obviously the format that we do with Leah on the pre-race episodes. I also feel like there's something to be said just in general about bringing these behind the scenes type conversations to the people like you and I had this awesome weekend at the Black Canyon 100K where... We got to hang out with Anthony Costales and Katie pre- and post-race. Corinne Malcolm stopped by the Airbnb. Of course, we got to hang out with Mike and Leah for all three days of it. Talked with Matt Feldaki at Aravipa, Jamil, AJW. Um, so, like, how can we bring people that are based in North Carolina or Maine or North Dakota that aren't traveling to these races, how can we bring them into these settings, even if it's virtually? Um, I think that's that's a bit of my mission, at least
1: i know maybe in the future we're gonna have to go like like a mixture of like the truman show where like there is a channel that is live streaming just what like what we do for a weekend 24 7 like just the entire time always live like reality tv but taken one step further that they couldn't do on on cable because that would have been that would have been nuts
0: i think we should start by recapping the weekend at black canyon and i want to say I want to go into one quick soliloquy here before I turn it over to you. We've had a couple conversations on the Long Run Archives about what happens when we give the figurative keys to the castle to big companies like Iron Man and Lifetime Fitness and UTMB. And I just want to say that right now, I feel like Ervaipa has the figurative keys to the castle for American trail running live streaming and how lucky are we that they have those keys? Jamil, Matt crew, just a bunch of humble people that want to grow the sport and trust that. Sure. Some benefits might come back to their business, but a lot of the benefit will come to everyone in the sport as well. Um, when you talk with them, they're very others focused, not trying to pull you into their dramas. They want to look out for the sport, talk about ideas in our sport. Um, just fun, generous, idealistic people to be around. Um, I think we both agree it's great to work with them. So I just wanted to say that. And uh, I'm curious what what you think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I 100% agree. I love that the company that might be making the biggest waves in terms of like growing the sport, just like, you know, with the way that they're broadcasting, live streaming, putting on their races, also happens to be the company that they're almost like a, a accidental success i mean like clearly they they work very very hard but it's not to make money like the company does make money like, they're still a for profit company but the underlying reasons for why they're doing what they do isn't actually to make money like they're doing it because they love the sport and they want to see it grow and a byproduct of what they're doing and growing that sport is going to make them some money which is going to allow them to then reinvest it into their projects and you know continue with that upward spiral of success and I'm so glad that it's in their hands because as I've seen now for two you know live stream weekends and just like been in the trenches with them for you know like a couple days straight it it really does feel like they're doing it for all the right reasons Um, like either I'm like a naive idiot and they're like, you know, (laughs) just doing all the shady stuff right under my nose. But like, I don't know, man, I feel like we've been there long enough where it really does just seem like they, they love the sport.
0: As you were hopping on your return flight to Medford, Oregon, and then Ashland, Oregon on Sunday night, what were some of the biggest thoughts that were swirling through your head that you were kind of grappling with, you know, post-race post, post post-everything?
1: Well, I guess I, w- I it was a lot of like kind of comparisons, like between just like Bandera and Black Canyon. Like, uh, how did we do? How did the whole production go? Um, and I think the Black Canyon live stream and like just the entire weekend was much more successful. Everything was way more fluid. We added a ton to it. You know, there was the post race show. There was the elite panels that were live um there was still the whole chasing gold series AJW and Chris did the their the pre-race show through Aravipa but then the entire production of the race not only was it more difficult because Black Canyon is a point-to-point course they didn't use that as a cop-out like everything got smoother between Bandera and Black Canyon because they're also directing Black Canyon as a race so like They know the area better. They know where the limitations are regarding, you know, cell service. So they know exactly like we can really pump bandwidth here in these spots and covering a point to point race is very difficult. So we had to have two teams on the ground, um, leapfrogging each other, getting to different spots. Like there are so many added elements of difficulty and I would say that like, it almost seemed easier than Bandera because they were just so in their element with what was going on. And I, I, I don't even know. I feel like there was like six directors and they were all directing their own pieces perfectly. Um, and then, you know, when it finally came to us hopping on the live stream, like I was just in awe that, you know, they're already, you know, six hours into the race and we got to go in and talk and like call the finishes and, You know, the racing was amazing and all that stuff, but like, they're just like, like, I don't, I wouldn't say there is like, there was no disasters beforehand. Like everything just worked. And like, that's, that's the future of live streaming, like broadcasting, like there's no, like there was no downtime where like the feed cut out for an hour. Like, of course there's still going to be like some slightly like choppy audio or video sections, but for the most part, like you and I were there, we were just watching the race for the first, you know, six hours before we hopped on. I was glued to it because it was so exciting. It was so engaging. Um, and then, and then we got to be a part of it. So it was just, it was just so pro. It was so professionally done.
0: There's so many little nuances in terms of the upgrades that happen year over year. And I think if you've been following the sport for the last five or 10 years, you start to notice them. You mentioned the pre and post race interviews that Iruvipa hosted with our friend, Leah Yingling, who, you know, just did an excellent job. And you think about where that whole production was five or 10 years ago, like when Iron Far broke ground and made it possible back in, you know, roughly 2010, they were just like post Western States, pulling people to the side of the track and in a relatively low budget, low production setup.
1: It was a handicam.
0: <laughs> it was just a handicam. and credit to them. You have to start somewhere. And There are reasons, huge credit to them, why we are where we are today as a sport. But yeah, AeroVipe, it just made this incredible studio-like setup for the post-race interviews. Guests, hosts were sitting on comfortable couches. There was this nice shaded awning over them, just this overall great ambiance. Multiple camera angles. Multiple camera angles. Yeah, it just looked so high production. So yeah, just stuff like that was a huge eye-opener for me this weekend. And yeah. Huge, huge difference maker.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I think Black Canyon as a race is is kind of one of the perfect races to be able to do something like this because they can have you know they can have a thousand people do the race. You know, so like you can build out a massive elite field. Um, You know, it's I'm sure we'll get into this later, but it's like, you know, everyone runs Black Canyon to. Qualify for Western states, but is there ever a scenario where Black Canyon turns into like the North Face fifty mile? Where North Face fifty mile didn't qualify you for anything; you just went and showed up because there was like ten grand on the line, and it was like the end of the season, like fifty mile throwdown. What if Black Canyon hundred K kind of turned into that, and like a byproduct of that was an entry to Western states? But like Anthony Costales, for example, he said, "I wasn't thinking Golden Ticket; I was thinking." I see these legit people signed up for West or for black Canyon. I want to race them and see how good I am.
0: Okay. This is, that is such a good thought experiment. And I don't know if I have the answer off the top of my head, but I kind of want to throw this back to you. Like if you think about all the forces that make a race an end in and of itself, like people aren't trying to use it as a means to another event, another goal, um, do you think it's a function of really good marketing? Do you think it's a function of these athletes, just enough of these influential athletes saying like, that is the race that we have to go do and others follow suit? Is it the scenery, is it a bit of everything? What do you think are the most important factors that make these races like the North Face 50, like the Black Canyon 100K, a cultural phenomenon? I mean, I, it's
1: so far, I mean, from what I've seen, just as my time in the sport, it's the, the most competitive races have been the ones that kind of all the best runners collectively just decide to go and do. Um, I don't know if like for back lack of a better term, it's just like the trendy race, um, like North face 50 miles just kind of turned into the trendy end of season 50. And I think people talked and what people talked about was how fun it was. Like, like we are going to go and we are going to smash this. It's going to be so fast. It's going to be so competitive. There's going to be a giant after party at the deuce. Um, you know, it's, it was all of those things that I think people talk about. And like, and then when every, all the pros are there and like a lot of the the heroes of the sport, the fans are going to show up. Other people are going to want to come race it. Um, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I got some of those vibes from Black Canyon, because not only was were there very competitive fields, if you took the people that were there, crewing, pacing, just spectating the race, there was some. There was a lot of talent just hanging out, being fans of the sport as well, yeah. um, which is pretty cool to be like at an aid station, maybe waiting for your runner, and then like, you know, half of the Adidas Terex team is also just chilling there. Because they're there or like, you know, the craft teams there at the aid station, just chilling, they're waiting for their runners to come through and like, you could go up and talk to them and say, Hey, um, that, that kind of happened at, in the North face 50 mile. And I got a lot of those similar vibes at black Canyon, um, Lake Sonoma, 50 mile kind of fell into that, uh, into that as well. Um. But it does appear that a large reason
0: for the competition of that race was because it was a golden ticket race. I think Black Canyon has a lot of things going for it. I think the time of year, he mentioned how North Face was situated in like late November, early December. Uh, very easy to organize as your end-of-the-year event. Black Canyon can be that beginning-of-the-year event. Like the season opener. The season opener. And I think there are other things that, I mean... The field size, I think it has the capacity to be the biggest event in America. But I think that the most important thing, besides the fact that Arab Vipa puts on a great event, is the, I'll call it on-demand racing, where you can have someone like David Laney, who has the flexibility to register for the event like three days before, and then ultimately plays a pivotal role in the race. And, like, I love Western States, for the record. I am unbelievably a super fan of Western States. But a race like that, or even UTMB, you have to commit like six months out minimum.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, UTMB, UTMB kind of used to be the race that not you sign up, but they'd let in most of the elites. Like if you had, if you, if you had the ranking, you'd just email them and say, Hey, I want to come race. And they're like, okay, you're in because it's, it's black or white. If you're over this number, you're in, if you're under this number, you're not in, Black Canyon gets to play a similar game to that, where it's like, there's so many spaces they can, you can just sign up for the race or, you know, they can let you in. Um, Which, you know, that's where a lot of the like complaints, I guess, with the current UTMB pre-processes for this year is because like they're getting away from that and they're like making it more difficult to get into the race. But so, you know, for Black Canyon, being able to just go and sign up, uh, that's pretty huge from a you know competitive standpoint, building out big elite fields.
0: I feel like to date, one of the biggest reasons why races like Western States have become the most popular events in our sport is because of the storytelling behind them the legend behind them, the history, what if Black Canyon becomes one of the biggest events, if not the biggest event in the American trail scene, purely based on technology. So you have people like Jamil and Matt Feldaki who are like at the very bleeding edge of figuring out what's possible from a live streaming standpoint in our sport. And they make this viewing and racing experience that is so compelling that it becomes even more attractive to the best runners, regardless of the history that exists in other events?
1: Well, yeah, because now we're getting to start talking brand exposure. Um, What if this is the most viewed, uh, you know, from a live stream standpoint, you know, American Ultra as a, you know, as a brand manager, (laughs) I'm not a brand manager. I'm thinking as one, as a brand manager. Now I kind of want some of my athletes to go do that, you know, and if you're like, say unsponsored, the fact that, like, I looked at the just the YouTube views from the Black Canyon live stream versus Bandera, and the Black Canyon live stream had more total views within a couple hours of it finishing than Bandera's to date. Like, it already wow. has surpassed it, and Bandera was a huge hit. I think they said that was their their biggest one ever in terms of total views. Black Canyon passed it in a couple hours. Um, so like, you know, thinking about that from brand standpoint like it's like dude if our person wins that race they're gonna have so much camera time Um, yeah they're getting the interviews and stuff it's like that's
0: that's huge and maybe i can tease this out right now and then maybe we should save the rest of it for our segment on like future ideas for live streams but i was thinking about this on the plane ride home and let's say that you're a runner that's having a bad race or you're bonking or you have to drop out with this live stream technology there are still ways to provide interesting exposure for your brand and your performance on the day like pre-live stream you were an afterthought if you dropped or bonked or whatever because you weren't crossing the finish line but if we're following these runners for you know from start to finish um you know someone like i don't know canyon woodward who you know i think he had the dropout around black canyon city this past weekend he still provides 30 or 40 miles worth of coverage for his brand patagonia and you know anyone else he's affiliated with and i think that that's super interesting and he can take the clips from that live stream. He can splice them up if he wants, he can create some real and I don't know, there's just so many ways to repurpose your experience, even if it's not your day from a marketing standpoint. And I think that's going to create future opportunities for these athletes who, you know, only have a few times to race each year and they're living and dying on every performance. And now you can monetize and still have something to say, something to share about your, uh, your bad days.
1: Yeah to play slight devil's advocate too, you can't quietly DNF a race like this. Like <laughs> we are going to expose yes. you. Um, so like that, <laughs> that, that lays on an added layer of pressure too, because like, you can't just quietly call it at like 20 or 30 miles. Like it's, if it pops up on the live tracker, like we're going to announce it, everyone's going to hear that yep. you dropped out. And like, I, I, I feel like that almost adds an added layer of pressure of like, you better be on your A game when you're approaching these races, because like all eyes are on you, like, you know, like there's a good chance, like, we're going to see you take a piss in the bushes because drone coverage. And like, that shouldn't stop you from peeing in the bushes. Just know that we might be calling your, your nature break on the live stream. And like, that's totally cool. But like, that's, that's, that's like a big parallel with, um, like cycling and stuff too. Um, especially like one of the most dramatic parts in cycling or like in the tour de France is towards the end of the tour. When you're going through some of the biggest mountain stages, there's usually always um, the final group of riders. Cause it's like a rolling cutoff where like usually when, once the winner finishes, it's a set number of minutes after they finish that's the cutoff. Yeah. So then there's always yeah. this cat and mouse game with the, the group of sprinters who like riding flat things trying to time it so that way they survive the stage within like 90 minutes of the winner, but every once in a while there's like a, a biggest sprinter in the tour has to drop out midway through a mountain stage because they can't hang to like an early hot pace and, and like they have a camera on them at the back of the pack getting off their bike getting into the team van you know it's like probably some of the more dramatic like dnfs that i've ever seen um but, like, we're, we we might be approaching similar situations, like, to that in our sport, which, yeah, just it just adds an additional layer of drama, for better or worse.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a phenomenal point. Yeah, the exposure piece. Um, I made a note of it. Let's come back to it, because I want to have a whole conversation about the live stream and how this impacts us, how it impacts races, fans, runners, etc.
1: Wait, wait, slight slight change. T- To continue with the Black Canyon and like, you know, we were talking about like the professionalism and like how they all like have their shit together so well. Can we just talk about your whirlwind of a weekend? Yeah, we have to. Like just like, yeah. How is is your weekend?
0: (laughs) Well, Brett, you know. We've gotten to know each other pretty well over the past couple of live streams. And you know that like any human being, I am fallible. I have weaknesses. And the last time that we got together for Bandera, I was in such a rush to get out the door. I managed to leave my laptop at home and had to go to the mall in Phoenix to buy a brand new MacBook Air just to make it through the weekend. So uh, that set the bar extremely high for my level of disorganization. Yeah, I didn't think you could top that. And it came roaring back this weekend at Black Canyon. I managed to lose my wallet. I lost my... uh, You don't even have a wallet. You lost all the cards that are in your pocket. Yeah, and I lost all the cards that were in my pocket. Um, And there was a very long, I think, 24 to 36-hour stretch in the middle of the weekend where I thought I legitimately was going to have to negotiate with TSA to get back on my flight home because I had no identification on me at that point. Although, for some reason, it turns out I was using a social security card as a bookmark for the book I was reading over the weekend. So, um, I guess you had your social I, somehow, security
1: card as a bookmark. for yeah. a book. Oh my God. How did that even get there? How is that? This is what we're dealing with. It's like, Finn is so put together on these podcasts, but then like the credit card was never found. He, Finn only got to use the credit card once. And it was like the first morning when we we're buying coffee. And then after the runner, like my credit card has gone. Like, oh, better freeze that. And then 20 minutes later, dude, my ID's gone too. I don't know where it is. Like, oh my goodness. I'm just like, does anyone have a charger? You left your laptop charger in the studio after the live stream was over too. We're driving back, you're like, oh, I don't have my laptop charger.
0: <laughs> yeah. So on Sunday, because AeroVipe is closed on Sundays, Matt, the marketing director, had to leave my charger in a bush outside the front door for me to, um, come pick up
1: that's incredible
0: oh just absolutely crazy and then it turns out my id was stuck in the pocket of the car that we were renting it was just like locked to the surface of the side compartment yeah it was like lodged
1: in a plastic flap like i can it was not just an oversight it was like wedged in between the plastic panels of our rental car and I, it was hilarious because like Sunday morning, Finn's not flying out till like 4 p.m. on Sunday and he's getting ready to go to the airport at 7 a.m. just so he can be interrogated for six hours by TSA.
0: <laughs> Guantanamo Bay style.
1: Dude, I was, I almost went to the airport with him just so I could like try and watch. But uh, then he found the ID and he at least was able to make it home. But like that was just, that was a bit of the whirlwind of the weekend. That just added to the humor of everything. That Yeah. yeah
0: and you have to you know i think it's like anything in life socialization is important because you have to go out in public and hang with people to realize how ridiculous what you consider to be the normal day-to-day affairs are in your life like this is just me in default mode operating like i live in this chaos and it's just normalcy for me and you guys get to see the comedy that is my life
1: i know and we're like our minds were blown that that's (laughs) just not like that's not like, oh no, like I've lost credit cards before and like this credit card's special, I can freeze it without canceling it. So that way when it's found again, I can just unfreeze it. <laughs> like, Free oh, you've sure that- done this before.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the freezing technology was created specifically for me.
1: Yeah, for um, all the fins out there.
0: So really all we're plotting for is the next time we do this live stream, live coverage stuff. Like, what's it gonna be? What's the next episode? How do I <laughs> How do I one up what I just did these last two times?
1: I mean, if I had to take a guess, I would have figured that like our rental car was going to get stolen or something.
0: (laughs) Okay. Anyways. Yeah. Always. It's always good when the audience gets to know the hosts a little bit better. And, uh, yeah, the short answer is no, I am not the most put together human being. Life is chaos. And, uh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on it. You got to just triple down on your strengths and, accept or uh i don't know to some extent forget about your weaknesses and um all right i gotta ask one more question about black Canyon, or actually a couple questions about black canyon is this the is this the second most competitive american ultra in the u.s like if we're thinking about 50 milers 100ks 100 milers is this number two right now
1: right now for 2023 it's absolutely number one right now i mean we don't have that many races on the year to go by and this was more competitive than Bandera. Um later on this year, I think Western States is going to be a higher level of competition than Black Canyon. I'm still not I'm not convinced that Canyon's hundred K well yeah, I'm not convinced that Canyon's hundred K, fifty K or Hundred Mile will be more competitive than Black Canyon's hundred K because there's a Black Canyon fifty K, Hundred K, Hundred Mile with incentives on the line for all three races. Top ten from all of those races get their auto invite to their respective equivalent UTMB distance, being OCC, CCC, and UTMB. So, like that right there uh, kind of waters down the level of competition in traditionally what had been the number two most competitive race, the Black Canyon 100K. So, you know, there's probably going to be a couple of people that maybe just decide to jump up to the 100 mile, get that UTMB spot. Um, there's going to be some people who do the 50K to grab that OCC spot Um, you know the Black Canyon 100k as a golden ticket race is still going to be super competitive but I'm just I'm just worried that the amount of additional racing that they've added to that um, is going to take away from it I don't think that necessarily means that like the top one two or three is going to be any worse than previous years you know I'm talking like overall competitiveness like you know we're talking through 10th 15th place You know, beyond that, like the only one that I see potentially being more competitive is Javelina. And I don't know, as it lies, I just like don't see it being more competitive because Black Canyon 100K this year was more competitive than Javelina last October. I'll tell you one thing, like I'm definitely not getting fourth at Black Canyon this year. Like, no, no chance. I'm best day of my life. I'm like maybe around 10th. But that's even, that's like a big if, like, I think I'm looking like 15th.
0: Do you think in the same way we saw a bunch of guys go under eight hours at Black Canyon last weekend, we'll see a bunch of guys go under 13 hours later this year at Javelina, like Dakota Jones went under 13 hours at the race this past year?
1: Well, apparently it's not hot in Arizona anymore because (laughs) the two big Arizona races where they're like, basically they're two coolest, not coolest years. Cause black and had very cold years, but that's forced reroutes. But like, they've had two good weather years. I mean, the temperatures on Saturday played a part into the fast times um, and, you know, fast second halves, but like, that's just, you get what you get. That's trail racing. Like, I'm not going to say that, Oh, the course records only got broken because of the weather. The course records got demolished. Mm. had you thrown equal weather days I don't think it's slowing them down 20 minutes um, you know the same thing happened to Havalina. like we got a good weather year it wasn't cold but it wasn't 90 so you know if Javelina gets that again I could see the overall times continuing to get faster but uh, you know and I, I'm sure you can ask most of the people who are winning these races that's, that's this afterthought Uh, winning is more important and racing is more important. And when you get high levels of competition and people collectively racing each other, fast times come from that. And that's what we saw from black Canyon this year. Like none of those people were gunning for the course record. They were gunning for the win. And as a result, the course records got broken on both the men's and women's sides.
0: One follow-up question I want to ask, um, reliably. For, you know, the last many years, all roads lead to Western states. Western states has been the most competitive ultra in the U S and acknowledging that the rest of the field of races has been relatively fluid in terms of competitiveness. Is there any chance that over the next three to five years, black Canyon could reliably be the second or third most competitive race? Or do you forecast that we'll keep seeing this competitive fluidity among all other races that Aren't Western States
1: with what I, you know, have know and have seen regarding like air Vipa and them directing black Canyon and kind of like what they want out of it. I could see that race being much more reliably the second most competitive, you know, trail ultra in the U S because I don't anticipate the race changing much. Like, the course or the logistics or anything like that like that's one thing about western states that's been like kind of pretty standard the course has had very very minor deviations um you know in the past like even like canyons 100k there's already been two you know there's been a significant course change you know the the covid year course and then it turned into the permanent course but -hmm. there's a lot of rumblings that they're not going to be able to use that this year because snow and the trails won't be ready in time so then it's like now we're looking at the third iteration of that course. And it's like, you just don't, people like consistency. And I think Black Canyon's going to provide some of that consistency.
0: All right. I have another thought about the competitive fields at Black Canyon this weekend. Curious to get your reaction. Um, And I cannot take credit for the genesis of this idea. I was talking to a guy named ultra runner on Instagram DMs about it. Have you talked with him before? He's kind of cool. I like, uh,
1: no, I just liked the name.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother thing. I think he's like super big on creating monikers or nicknames and just rolling by that alias. But anyways, he, uh, you know, he was talking about how this was an incredibly deep field at black Canyon, like 20 to 25 deep on both sides and how it's just wild to see these 50 plus runners sacrifice, at least, you know, three to four months of their life via a training block just to finish fourth or fifth or sixth, seventh, eighth in the field. And in those positions, you walk away with the same rewards as someone who finished 150th, which is like a belt buckle and maybe some stuff at packet pickup. And I just think that that's especially tough because a lot of these folks who are finishing those spots, they're chasing this, not just as a hobby, and I think that's clear to mention or important to mention, but, really as a profession or a career. And like, unless you're getting a golden ticket and setting a course record and winning the race, it's pretty much all or nothing at these races in terms of those rewards you get from sponsorship and stuff like that. So what do you think about that? Does that frustrate you? Does that make you wish we were doing things better? What do you think? I
1: a a hot take. It, it doesn't frustrate me um, because I get the struggles of running outside of trail running like trying to become an elite marathoner road racer track and field athlete it's the same perhaps even worse like it might be harder to solo make it in track or on the roads than on the trails um like you almost need like i mean to to get good at trail running for the most part, you still just have to run like a good amount on trails. But like, if you're trying to become an elite hundred meter runner, you don't just go and like run a hundred meters hard over and over and over. Like there's so much stuff outside of what you do on the track that costs so much more money than getting good at trail running. Like most of what you, most of your your gym, your playground for trail running is trails. Um, Get good at like, is most of the events in track and field, you know, shorter than the 1500. You yeah. need to have like access to like gyms. Like amazing like like maybe if you have a full professional background in like strength coach or like agility coaches, you need all that. And to be able to do that solo is I think so much harder than soloing it on the trail side of the world. And like if you top 10 it like is top 10 at Black Canyon more or less impressive than grabbing like an OTQ at CIM? Because there's more than 10 people get OTQs at CIM. Like there's you know usually like 40 or 50. But is getting like 48th place I at think- CIM as good as 10th at Black Canyon? Or is it not even that good anymore?
0: I think that's a really good question. I think my first reaction in what I was going to say before you made that comparison, which I think, by the way, is a good one, is that when you're getting fourth place at Black Canyon, it still feels like you've had, for a lot of these athletes, a performance breakthrough. Like you're accomplishing something, and yet you're walking away with nothing. You're walking, you're walking away with no prize money. You're walking away with probably little to no interest from sponsors who want to reward.
1: All parallels with just barely getting an OTQ.
0: Exactly. I think your example is great, and you know, I would say the same thing about the road running world.
1: There's more people that sell their soul to grab an OTQ. Uh, t- Olympic trials qualifier. That's like actually one of my biggest pet peeves is when you use an acronym, but then never say what it means. Um, That's the OTQ Olympic trials qualifier. Um, There's more people that sell their soul trying to get an OTQ than trying to get a golden ticket at a trail race. So like I've like, I just, I get like, that's just, that's just the blue collar way. And that's just kind of what it takes, you know? As my brother-in-law says, with most things, you got to pay to play.
0: Yeah, but I feel like to play out the blue collar analogy, those people are punching the clock. They're getting something in return. They're getting like a solid wage. They're probably part of a union. Like they've got a pension to look forward to. These people are just punching the clock and they're getting nothing in return.
1: Yeah, that's how running works. That's how running works. There are many more people who don't get shit for running other than this sense of like self-accomplishment than those who also get those same feelings and get paid. Like, yeah. for the most part, it's a pipe dream for most people. Um, But it's one that I think, if you think you're close, absolutely go for it. Like,
0: try. Is there anything you think we could realistically implement tomorrow to compensate people that are falling just outside that category of course records, wins, podiums, like these people in those four to ten spots?
1: I mean... I just don't see what else like there's so little money in the sport as is like what, what are you, what are you like? What as a race director, what are you supposed to do other than comping a handful of entries? Like you can't, there's not enough money in these races to pay for hotels or travel for unsponsored runners. Um, you know, got an idea. maybe if they did like a contest where like, if you're an elite runner, like we'll pick like one or two, um, but I just I don't know what they're su- what they're supposed to do. All
0: right. This is the first time on the podcast I'm going to attempt to do public math. But
1: he's like, oh, uh, uh, yep, yep. I have an idea. This is like the dumb and dumber scene with the <laughs> with the burger. <laughs> huh. yep. I think I got an idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hope at least 30 people that are listening to this episode get that reference because it's perfect. But, um, yeah, you know, like there's about a thousand people that sign up for Black Canyon every year. And let's just say Jamil sends out an email before the 2024 event saying, hey, we're raising registration fees by 15 bucks a person for the 100K uh, and the 60K in order to fully fund a $15,000 prize purse for the men's and women's fields. So, you know, 7500 for the men, 7500 for the women. There's your prize money. Do it through raising registration fees just a little bit with the disclaimer that it's all going towards a prize purse. What do you think?
1: I think that sucks. Like so many of the people signing up through these races don't give a shit about the elite fields. And I think that's great. Like you are there because you are going to run the course on your own spiritual journey through a hundred K for the race. And you should not have to pay more just to pay for someone else to win. That prize purse should be coming from the title sponsors of the race. Like the everyone in the Boston marathon who signs up for that race, like I, most of their prize money, like their, their entry fee is not going towards the prize purse. Like that's getting put up by like freaking Hancock or whoever's the title sponsor now of the race. Cause then they get to say like the prize purse presented by blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I don't think it's, sh- it should be optional. Do you want to pay an amount of money towards the prize purse? That's fine. But like, it should not be a requirement for everyone else to just fund the top group. Cause it's like the races are getting expenses of enough as is. I, th- I really think the money can come from somewhere else. And I don't think it should just be put on the backs of, a large field is that historically how it's done yes yeah, sponsors put up the prize money the people don't put up prize money that's absurd like if i'm putting up the prize money i want an opportunity to win it but if i'm not fast then that's <laughs> not really fair uh, it needs to come from somewhere else like it needs to come from like hoka or you know whoever else was you know so sponsor- goo they should put up some money. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of a crowdfunded prize purse. That's totally optional, like by donation. Like I just, cause like you can only, you're only thinking that idea because black Canyon has a thousand people in it. What if we did that for Western States and Craig's just like, I want to make it so that way there's a, Hundred thousand dollars across the prize purse, but we're just going to spread it out amongst the 367 entrants. Everyone now pays two thousand dollars to pay (laughs) to run Western states, so that way the top 10 is eligible for prize money.
0: Maybe an interesting, I guess, the question I have off this you know, and by the way, I think you're correct now that I think about it, saying that if we added 15 bucks on top of everyone's current registration fees, there'd be a mutiny because it's not in the self interest of the vast majority of the field to do that. But my question based off that, are there any things that the vast majority of the field currently funds in a race environment that is not to their interest? Has Have races gotten away with that in other areas is what um, I'd be curious to know.
1: Um, well, like, oh, sure, sure. I mean, I don't know. It seems like Iron Man does a great job of charging exorbitant amounts for their races. And then just like the people at the very top of the pyramid make lots of money, like I don't know. I've, I you were at UTMB, you would you would know. I mean, it sounds like the aid station's kind of suck. Like they have great they're big and they have awesome volunteers, but what I'm hearing is like the options were like coke, hot broth or like bread and cheese. Like where is their nutrition sponsor? Like yeah. Why are these small American races have such like five-star feasts at their aid station but then like a massive one doesn't have even just like gels maybe maybe it's just yeah. a cultural difference like maybe i'm just not getting it because i've never raced in europe before but yeah it's it seems like like money's getting saved there
0: i think yeah i think you've changed my mind in the moment like now that i think about it
1: just like a fantasy free trail picks. <laughs>
0: Just like in uh, in fantasy free trail, free show, but I think the reason I thought it might be doable is because there are a lot of bizarre things in our sport that people do against their self-interest that somehow work out. Probably the most obvious one is the way uh, events are made possible through volunteers, right? Like in a lot of other industries that would be a fully contracted out pay production, but it's like this delicate balance in our sport that just keeps going on and who knows when it's going to end, but there's probably a lot of unfair practices that are inherent and in all that. But I don't know. I think you changed my mind there. That's uh yeah.
1: Yeah. I just think that a, a prize purse. Yeah. Could come from somewhere else. And like, I love the idea. I'm still rolling with this. Like we're going to, I'm going to make sure this happens for black Canyon next year is the live stream rolling prize purse where money that gets donated during the live stream contributes equally to the men's and women's you know podium or top five or whatever and we have a tally on where it's at so then we can see it starts at zero at you know the start and then maybe it's up to like 1500 bucks for the winner by you know soap creek or black canyon city and then as we're nearing table mesa it's like anthony you got a hammer dude you're at five thousand dollars on the line or you know keely you just overtook you know heather jackson for the lead it's now up to five grand and then people who are getting invested in the live stream and the story are like oh yeah i want to kick a couple bucks towards towards this level of competition like this has been such great entertainment value i think it's this much like no minimums just whatever you think is fair like I'm all for the slider scale, voluntary prize purse, because it would just be fun, and like it's another thing like us as like live stream broadcasters, we would get to talk about it and like interact with the chat about what's going on. Like, I think that's a, a unique proposition that our sport could take hold of just because of the, the freedoms that we have in the Wild West that is trail racing live streams
0: so just so I understand this correctly you believe that we could generate a pretty sizable pot that's crowd um, sorry crowd yeah
1: I mean at, at, you know there was like 2,000 people on the live stream at any one given point you know I, I think Matt probably has the data to see how many individual, people hopped on over the course of the live stream. But I remember for Bandera, it was something like 22,000. Like if each of those people kicked in $1, you now have a $22,000 prize purse. That's bigger than what you would probably announce before the race, just with sponsor money. And then what if a company like Hoka decides to flex on that and be like, we'll match it up to a certain amount of, money you know whatever the live stream kicks in will match up to twenty thousand dollars or something like that now we're doubling the size of this prize person and it's huge and like now you get equal representation from a sponsor and the fans of the sport except nothing's mandatory
0: i like it a lot i think it also requires a similar uh a similar leap in faith for uh for people to contribute to. And it would be a really good litmus test for how many people that are on that live stream that are watching it that are actually true fans of the sport.
1: I mean there was a lot of people that cared about the racing that was going on.
0: I wish we could somehow survey the 2000 people that were watching at any given time. Like why were they tuning in? Were they tuning in because they thought they had a chance to see some middle of the pack runner that they were following were they tuning in because they were a fan of heather jackson were they tuning in because they were glued to the women's race or the men's race
1: they just liked hearing finn melanson's voice
0: (laughs) um yeah for real though i think i think it'd be interesting i think that would give us a lot of answers but back to your point it's a good idea i think um, we saw some donations come in while we were on air, and it was cool to see in real time. It was super encouraging. Oh yeah,
1: no, yeah, people were people were donating to just the production, um, and that's that's like kind of where we started thinking about it. Like after band over, like dude, this could be bigger. Like the platform already exists. Like the button already exists. The ability to throw electronic money towards something already exists, and people are already doing that fully not knowing where those dollars are even going.
0: Okay, I got to ask one more question about Black Cannon because this is currently blowing up in multiple directions on Twitter. I tweeted out the following, quote, unless a sponsor intervenes, one of the best runners in our sport, Anthony Costales is going to have to pay his entire way to the Western States 100. Golden tickets actually cost a few thousand bucks, factoring in event registration, travel, lodging, etc. Should this change? Question mark, end quote. And uh, I'll, I'll add on, because I didn't include it in the tweet, should an unsponsored runner, um, should we find a way for these unsponsored golden ticket winners to have their trips financed to Western states on their behalf? What do you think?
1: Well, like, what is getting their trip financed to Western states? What does that mean?
0: I think what I'm envisioning, and again, not not officially taking a position here, I'm envisioning the same level of support that, you know, Adam Peterman might get from hoka for his western states race experience so like
1: well adam could go to tahoe a month before the race yes i'm
0: thinking like airbnb covered flight covered or you're driving covered and perhaps And i think this is most important um perhaps most importantly having your 500 bucks or whatever it costs fee to western states
1: yeah i think it's like yeah i think it's like 500 bucks
0: 500 bucks yeah because at this point i don't think golden ticket's the right word it's really an invitation to pay and sign up it's not like you won something to be redeemed it's not a golden ticket it's just an invitation to pay and sign up
1: yeah god i mean because when you start throwing in the like travel logistics that price can swing so much because like i mean jeff rose freaking won the race like he slept at a campground like that whole week leading up to the race like just eating like jet boil you know hot buttered noodles with like kale
0: in it which we have to stay for the record is so badass.
1: and like he, he won the race. So like, who's to say that then, Oh, if you're unsponsored and you win the race, we're, we're, we'll give you $200 and you're good because you could just figure it out. Like how extravagantly does this unsponsored runner get to approach their Western States trip? Like
0: bare necessities, no extravagance. So yeah, like you said, I think you made a good point about how Adam Peterman gets the, the training camp and a lot of the bells and whistles attached to his experience this would
1: he's already a pro
0: he's already a pro yeah I, I guess the thing that sticks out the thing that sticks out with anthony is like he is at the level of adam Peterson. he is at the level of Walmsley. like he he just beat tom evans by five minutes and here's a guy who is so clearly in that caliber of runners and he's gonna have to piece together all of the funds independently without any i mean and again we're recording this on Tuesday, February twenty first. A lot can change. Maybe he's already in talks with a sponsor, but like as of right now, he's a free agent. It would be like the equivalent of Jason Tatum in the NBA, or you know, Devontae Adams in the NFL, like not having support. It's just that fact is bewildering to me.
1: Yeah, and that's still where our sport is. Like there's no union, there's no pro league. Um you know, it's it's I mean, how different is it than I mean, yeah, sure, he's faster than someone in the middle of the pack, but like someone in the middle of the pack who's running Western States this year, who's maybe running Black Canyon as a tune-up, like they're forking over all that money themselves too. Like, I mean, unfortunately, Adam or Anthony just happens to be very, very good at running and got kind of caught in an unfortunate like sponsor type scenario, um, and that's you know, look like just like putting my, like, no, I'm not even going to put myself in his shoes. I don't want to like put words in his mouth or anything like that. But like, it's really hard to, it's really hard to win one of these golden ticket races. You have to put everything pretty much into your training. It's hard to then have the bandwidth to advocate for yourself and like pitch yourself to other sponsors, you know, before a race or after a race. Um, But at the same time, that's also where our sport is. And that's just kind of what you have to do. Like, sure, you can get an agent, but like most agents aren't going to help unless the con the potential contract size is pretty big because every agent's going to take, you yeah. know, 10 or 15% of like your contract, but they have to do a lot of work to land that contract. And if then they're going to pocket like $45, why would they do that? So then now it's your, it's left up to you to advocate for yourself. But again, there's just so much lack of knowledge in like how to negotiate your own contracts, and it's awkward to put a, a value on yourself in terms of a number. Like, even if you want to try and haggle with some of these brands, it's like, what if my starting number is too low, and they convince me that that starting number that is actually too low is too high, and then they haggle me down even further. There's no, there's not enough transparency in the sport, and then people like. Anthony end up getting screwed. Um, but what he did was double down on himself, continue to keep training really hard as if he's a professional athlete, and then just go and show all these people up. That's going to cost a little bit of money, but I think in the long term, it'll, he'll be able to pay it all. Like It'll be fine. Like He'll be able to pay it back. Um, sure, it would be nice if he could have had help before this race in terms of payment and stuff, or maybe even afterwards to Western States. I mean, there's still, yeah, like you said, a lot of time, but like, it's just an investment. He's investing in himself. A company is going to invest in him as well. And like, yeah, I mean, and like, this is coming from someone like I get it a little bit because I've never been f- fast enough to land like a contract or get So Like I've always had to pay for all my, stuff and like because i love racing and i like going to these courses i'm always willing to save some money that i could maybe be putting other places for for these types of races like whether i was good at running or not i was kind of always going to be prepared to spend this sort of money and i think for you know some of those unsponsored athletes that's a little bit where you got to go in as well
0: I think that's a great point, and you mentioned the haggling earlier and how it's naturally uncomfortable to have to talk and bargain with the brands, but I've always been confused as to why athletes aren't willing to just like put their the number that they want out there because their best alternative to negotiated agreement is that they keep their day job. They keep earning whatever it is, $60,000 a year, $120,000 a year, wherever it is on the spectrum at their current nine-to-five job, and then they keep running on the weekends and in the mornings and in the evenings, and they go on as if nothing changed. They don't stand to lose much. I feel like, you know, if an athlete wants 40 grand from a sponsor, they should just say to them straight up, I want 40 grand. And if they feel like that's a ridiculous number, well, they can just let the brand say no. And they go back to doing what they were doing before it even started. It's not because it's not like they're operating from a position of unemployment when they enter into these talks. So I don't know. Anyways.
1: Yeah, no, I think it, it's scary, but it's always worth taking that swing and just being like, Hey brand, I'm looking for a sponsor. This is what I can offer. This is what I'm asking for. What do you think? Um, there's been scenarios in the track world where, uh, contracts have been contingent on like the next race. Like, um, one that, yeah, there was an athlete in the 20, like 2020 Olympic trials for the Tokyo Olympics where they could have signed the contract with a brand for X number of dollars. But if they made the final for the trials, like if they made it through the semis and the quarterfinals, and then they made the final, then they could sign the contract for this much. So do you want to sign it now and guarantee a slightly less number, but it's secure and locked in? Or do you want to gamble on yourself for two more races and then get to unveil the new pro kit as you walk out of the tunnel for the final and you'll get Price bump for that. So, like, I could see, like, I could almost see a scenario where, like, you're like, hey, you know, Hoka, Solomon, Nike, whatever, I'm about to run Black Canyon. You know, if I run and I do it this well, you know, would you sign me for, you know, would it, would it be this much? Like, I think there's some negotiating, betting on yourself type tactics that could totally happen there.
0: One other thing I want to say here, um, and we've talked about it before, and I totally, It makes total sense as to why the contracts are going in this direction of social media and storytelling and influence. I'm not disputing that, but I just wonder if we are over investing in it. Every single brand is now expecting athletes to be multifaceted, to have a pretty significant presence on these platforms. And it doesn't seem right to me that we, should totally abandon the pure performers. Like what happens to those runners that purely want to focus on their craft and not get distracted and not divert what I'll call precious energy to content creation, which is a job. And because we all know this is a fickle sport, even the best athletes have long stretches of injury and poor performance in addition to experiencing the highs of highs. And I don't want to speak for athletes like Anthony, for example, but I get the sense that like they strongly prefer to just work at the running and to do all the stuff around running that makes them the best they can possibly be and not spend time on Instagram because that's a drain. And it just, it just feels to me like we still need to leave a sliver of budget for that runner because they also contribute value to, you know, the competitive end of the sport. And it just doesn't seem like that perceived value among brands is there like it was in previous eras.
1: I almost feel like I just thought about this as you were talking about this because like I just changed my mind back and forth like three times over the course of like that statement. <clears throat> um I wonder if we're almost at the kind of the crux of the sport where you don't have to create your own content because we're seeing a lot more money getting put into these trail teams who now have photographers and videographers traveling with them to training camps to races like that takes the pressure off of the athlete to make that content and like the content that's going to get made is for the most part you know shy of some people who have experience in this realm the content that the the professionals are going to make for me is going to be better than anything that i make for myself so then now the pressure is not there anymore like they're just they'll the photography will be there. I can go for a run. They'll take the pictures, send them to me. I can go post whatever I want. I wonder because then that it almost turns into like a rich, get richer, poor, get poorer type scenario where like the content of the professional athletes is going to get even better because they're not making it anymore. And it's only going to get harder than to advocate for yourself because now you're having to compete against like professionals. But then does that also mean that these brands are not going to put as much emphasis on like how good you are at solo content creation, because they know once you're fast, we can just create that content for you and it's fine. Cause like I personally would love to see that scenario where someone like Anthony is like not have a huge social media presence on his own, but then, you know, the brand is like, Oh, that's fine. We have a whole media team. We'll pump that out. No problem for you you're very fast you just continue to be very fast we'll deal with all the other social media stuff
0: I love that take
1: I hope I love that I I, I want that in our sport because that's how a lot of the other big professional sports are like there's a handful that put out their own stuff but for the most part it's kind of curated professional athlete type content and there's a market for that.
0: What if in 2028 or 2029, we look back at 2023 as one of the last years where you had to go out on a run and like stand your phone up against a rock and hit like the timed photo capture thing or the video thing and like run by it five times. It's like, oh, you had to do that back then. That's that's insane. Like you don't have a content team around you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because like, I mean, it's so easy for the content team of a brand to be like, all right, all of us were all meeting in some really cool spot for one week. We're going to run all these different trails. We're going to change our clothes and our outfits like nine different times. And you now have an entire year's worth of content to put out. That's all it takes, like a literal photo shoot day. Um, And then you've got it. You've got all the professional
0: pictures you need for a long time. I mean, you think about, you know, our mutual friend, Mike McMoneagle, for example, who's been at all these important races in the sport for the last six to 12 months, he's probably getting... Five to six photos, high-quality photos of at least of at least the top ten men and women in each of those races, and he's probably giving each of those runners at least two, three, four, five, six Instagram posts worth of content for them to use in the next couple of months. Which I think you know might currently be undervalued in the market, but I think it's going to be an incredibly pivotal, important thing in years to come, based on what you're saying.
1: I think so too. Um, you know, like even just going on one long run with Mike. like sends a Dropbox folder of like 20 of the best running pictures that have ever been taken of me just because they're not a phone (laughs) standing up against a rock. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I am going to savor these and like drop these pictures one at a time for every three months for the next four years, because I don't know when I'm going to get this opportunity again.
0: 100%. Yeah exciting times and i think it's a good thing when pros are handling content creation in the same way that pros can handle their training and their recovery to the best of their ability it's um it's yeah it's good to outsource expertise i think i think so um, too
1: and then it's just going to let the running get better
0: yeah okay so maybe we're only a few years away from solving this dilemma altogether or the future is already here and it just has not been evenly distributed yet
1: yeah i know and maybe all it just takes is the right unsponsored person to pitch themselves to that brand that way like i'll be great on social media once you do it for me i'll just continue to be fast and then they'll be like oh yeah you're right your social media will be great once we sponsor you and i'd be like sure yeah go make it however you want (laughs)
0: let me go run switching topics any emerging storylines as uh as the Western States fields get slightly clearer now that we've had Bandera finished up, Black Canyon finished up, are there any interesting emerging storylines here that stick out to you?
1: I mean, I am so excited to see the podiums of the men's and women's fields from Black Canyon battle again over the XL version of Black Canyon that is Western States. Um, How will they how will they sim- now they know each other like they all just got to box each other once they now know all of their own strengths and weaknesses how do you adjust going into the next race like can heather jackson go out hot again at western states when the first two trail races she's done have been like pretty buffed easy races to go out hard on western states is a hard race to go out hard on because it starts going you know, you start going up a mountain and then you run through like 50 K of, you know, technical terrain. Um, and then it gets to the more runnable section. So how does that play into Heather Jackson's, you know, racing strategy? Um, you know, same with like on the, on the men's side, the, the race is 40 miles longer. Does that swing into Tom Evans? favor a little bit more? Or is Anthony Costales, is he just going to be that, that good at Western States? Um, this will also be his first time running Western States, right? Cause he's gotten a golden ticket in yes. the past, but did not get to start the race. Correct. So now Anthony won the race that Tom had never been to. Now the next time they race will be a race that Tom has been to and Anthony has not. That's huge in terms of just course knowledge. So, hey, you know, how much does that level the playing field now? As, uh, you know, knowing knowing the course and knowing where you're at is helpful. Tom's done it a couple times. Um, what do you think?
0: Going off here, the men's race discussion. I want to know if Hayden Hawks is a runner that is capable of winning Western States, does he have it in him? I think. Yeah. Like, does he have it in him? I think that this has been a focus race for him for the last two years now. And I've always wondered with Jim gone from the race, was it his to win or lose? See the type of runner in our sport that should be considered like a default front runner. Or is he always going to play second or third fiddle to other elites in the race? And, you know, you've got Tom Evans in this. You've got Dakota. You've got Matthew Blanchard. You've got Adam Peterman. There's more to come. How does he fit into that? And uh, I think it's important to note he raced courageously last year. Like super exciting, um, gutsy race on his part. But I'm just I'm very curious to know what his DNA is when it comes to this race. Is he meant to win, or will he be a podium guy? What well, and he
1: just he just didn't win Tarawera. You know, yeah. And Dan Dan Jones got, got away from him in the second. Dan game. Jones. who? Oh, Dan Jones. Exactly. But so how's Hayden's confidence feeling right now going into Tara that was like essentially supposed to be a tune-up race and then not winning. Same with Tom Evans. It was a yeah. tune-up for Western States. It's a, I want to see where I'm at, you know, do they have the confidence internally to be like, well, I, I'm training for Western States. I'm blue. Sh- I trained straight through this race, like Tarawera, Black Canyon. I'm not even at my full fitness. You know, I assume Dan Jones and Anthony Castalis full on trained and peaked for Tarawera and Black Canyon. Maybe those other two didn't. But what if they did? That would shake the confidence a little bit going into Western States. So it's like, I mean, Hayden Hawks is so good. He's, he deserves to be talked about as someone who can win any trail race. He starts, if he's healthy and he starts, he can win it, but will, will he in June? I'm again, still, I'm not convinced.
0: We'll put it in the show notes, but he did a podcast with Billy Yang about a week before the Western States 100 last year, talking about his buildup and his preparation. It was so good, and it makes you a super fan of him instantly, and if you follow his intensity and his passion for the race and his goals for it, you, uh, you're led to believe that it's going to work out one of these years, and he may have a similar journey like the one Jim had before he finally cracked the code, so... We will link to it in the show notes, but that conversation, I think, I always refer back to it. It's a great evaluation of where his mindset is at around this race and what he might be willing to do to, um, to get over the hump and win this thing.
1: Yeah, like, what is the correct temperature for the fire that is burning leading up to Western states? Because <laughs> if it burns too hot... And you obsess over everything leading up to the race too much you're you know you're coming in on fumes um like what is the correct temperature for the fire (laughs) supposed to be Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm sure that answer is different for everyone but like that's that's such a curious question that like i don't know how i don't know how it gets answered but like i think just a good thought provoking one is like how excited should you be about western states leading up to western states like how much better off would people be if they knew four months out that they were going to Western States and not six months. Like, right. I almost think this, uh, the six month out lottery, it's like too far. Like I understand why they do it, but like a lot of these people might almost be better off if they had like eight less weeks of knowing that they were in Western States.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. A
1: lot of these people in the top 10, they have an entire year to mull over it. <laughs> that drive me nuts.
0: One other storyline that I want to pitch to you, and I'm going to first name off some names that I think are going to contend for the win because I think the women's field is actually currently more fascinating than the men's field. You've got Courtney DeWalter, Camille Heron, Devin Yanko, Katie Scheid, Marianne Hogan, Leah Yingling, Heather Jackson, Keeley Henninger. That's just to name a few. All of those people in my mind can compete for the win at this race.
1: Certified heavy hitters, to quote the Coffee Club podcast.
0: Certified heavy hitters. But one thing that's interesting, a couple months ago, right it might have been a couple weeks ago on Twitter, Camille Heron said that her objective at this race was to win straight up. And she's coming off an eighth place finish last year. She's had struggles prior to this year at the race. Her notoriety isn't necessarily on trails or on Somewhat technical terrain, but she has stated again that her goal is to win this race. That's an interesting storyline to me. Like when she makes Western States truly a focal point of her training, is she capable of competing with the likes of Courtney DeWalter and all of those folks that I mentioned in the women's race for the win? So, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I love when professionals are open and clear about their goals for a race because then it gives us something to talk about. It gives the fans something to root about, not just on race day as you know, I I hope we continue to get like training updates. And I hope that they're like a little bit cocky and positive. Like I am finally incorporating long runs into my training. Like I just went 50 miles with 29,000 feet of climbing. Like it can be whatever, but like I I I would love to hear some continual updates about it and I like when people are public about their goals because that's terrifying. It's so scary to say them out loud. Um so massive respect to Camille for just uh, openly saying I my goal this year is to win Western states. Um Do I do I believe her? No, not yet. Um and that's okay. That uh, that's just that's my take, you know. I've run I've run the race twice now and it's it's actually a lot harder of a course than like people like make it sound. Like you need to have you need to be your tool sheds gotta have a lot of pretty sharp tools actually to be good at western states. Yep. Like if you're only good at the running parts, there's actually a lot of non running parts that like kinda eat you up. If you're only good at mountains, there's a lot of running parts you you lose too much time like you have to be pretty good at a lot of different things to win western states um and i've i've yet to be convinced that camille has enough of those tools yet to win um because i don't think you can just blitz the running sections and then tiptoe the any down technical downhills go super slow on any of the ups and be able to win this race anymore. Like, you know, some people listening might be like, well, Courtney is really good at running big mountain races. It's like, well, let's not forget that Courtney DeWalter's 24 hour distance PR is only nine miles shorter than Camille's. Like nine miles Mm -hmm. is kind of a lot, but it's also not that much. So like Courtney's pretty good at running actually. Um, So then when you combine like that with her incredible, mountain abilities plus you know some of the longest races she's done like from a time on feet perspective western states is not not a challenge for courtney you know it's the the level of intensity for that amount of time that is the challenge um like if if, if someone's going to beat courtney de walter straight up at like western states right now like who I mean, the first name that really actually comes to mind is like Marianne Hogan because Marianne's yeah. kind of shown bits and pieces of both, like PRing in the road marathon, running very fast at Bandera, then going and getting second at UTMB after getting third at Western States. All of that then shows, like, oh, if you put all your cards into the Western States thing and you already are qualified for it, like you could potentially go a lot faster than the year before. And like, now we're getting into like keeping up with Courtney sort of thing. What do you think?
0: Well, I agree with almost all of that. Actually. No, I agree with all of that. And I think uh, I wanted to echo what you said earlier about how fun it is as a fan of the sport to see, these athletes be brave, go out on a limb and say, These are my goals. Here's how my training is going. This is what I want to accomplish at the race. And, you know, it was fun. And I think it was good for the sport when Jim Walmsley called his shot at the 2017 Western States 100 and went on that whole saga and maybe added a little bit of ego in the process. I loved all that. It was great for the sport. And it's equally great for the sport when Camille does the same thing. I love, you know, on Twitter when she reminds you that she's a world record holder and, you know, when she says that you know, Western state, she's going to win it. Like that's good for the sport. It's good when these athletes show a little bit of ego, they show a little bit of personality and call their shots because I think it makes, you know, being a fan more entertaining. It's more fun to follow on race day. And I I don't think that it comes at the expense of anyone else either. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, like there's no regular season playoffs and then like Super Bowl or world series. We go from I mean, yeah, there's a couple qualifier races, but we go from pretty much zero to race day and the more storylines that we can have and talk about leading up to the race is going to make the race better. Like I want to know about how everyone's training is going right now leading up to Western States. You know, like I want to know what kinds of, you know, what, what are our approaches? What are we changing from last year to this year? Um, being able to know and learn about those sorts of stories would make the race itself so much more interesting, even more interesting than it already is. Like it's already an interesting race, but um, we could lean into those pre-race stories even more.
0: Any other Western states storylines that interest you?
1: Okay, here's a, a qu- question that I just thought of like a, 10 minutes ago that uh, will we ever see, like someone get in off the lottery and win the race again
0: was the last time cat Bradley
1: I believe so like the last time was cat Bradley and then every time since Ben then has been it's returning I think returning top 10 or golden ticket but like are we ever gonna see someone just get in off the lottery and win the race again
0: That's a great question. I think when we watched the drawing in December, you know, Iron Farr makes that list of, you know, who are the most prominent names that got pulled. I can't remember who they were last year or the year before, but I think generally, yes, there's always a chance as long as it's a household staple name. Like for example, you know, if Adam Peterman decides not to do Western States again after this year, because he wants to go focus on UTMB, but then in 2025, he starts putting tickets back in and he gets pulled. Of course.
1: Yeah. Like, like, like I guess in theory, Jim Wamsley might just be in the lottery because he could have put into the lottery after like UTMB this year.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Is Jim still putting tickets in?
1: Why not? At least keep your foot in the door.
0: Right? Yeah. No, it's, it's a good question. I think, um, I think the last time someone, yeah, Kat Bradley was the last person to win the race off the lottery. I wonder how many, uh, top 10 performances have come off of lottery pulls that'd be an interesting question as well
1: so yeah. that would be an interesting stat for sure yeah like the, of the top 10s how many of them just got in off the lottery um kind of sli- mm-hmm. slight side tangent but did you know that jim wamsley is not in UTMB he's not on the UTMB start list for 2023 yet because he got f- he got 4th At UTMB
0: 2022, so he did not get auto
1: invited back, and then he did not get picked in the lottery.
0: (laughs) This goes back to my argument about how you can finish fourth and still be totally screwed in our sport.
1: Like, Jim now, because I listened to Cracker Brew with AJW, and Jim said, like, I'm opening up my season running the 100 miles of Istria in Croatia because it's like a UTMB series, and I have to get in the top three to qualify for UTMB. So, like, now Jim has to run. Jim has to run an early season 100 mile off of ski legs just to get in.
0: The thing that I'm, well, I mean, that is interesting in and of itself. But when you take what he's doing, Istria, and then you take what Zach Miller just did at Tarawira, two of the biggest names in our sport are effectively buying into the UTMB system. Like, we wondered who would follow suit, and two of the most influential people, I mean, Zach Miller just ran 140 miles a week for 12 weeks to prep for Tarawera, just to get into UTMB. Like these runners are committed.
1: Well, I mean, Zach Miller was going to run 140 miles a week for 12 weeks, <laughs> even if he wasn't signed up for anything. He just happened <laughs> to also decide to run Tarawera. <laughs> That's a good point. But, but no, yeah, you're right. They're, they're playing the game. They're playing good the or game. bad, good or bad for the
0: sport. Well, we, open the episode talking about the keys to the castle and how important it is for the person who holds those keys to be a great steward of the sport. And I mean, we talked with Tim about it on the last long run archives. I love in principle what UTMB is doing, trying to create this coherent end to end season long narrative where elites know where they are at any point in the season on the competitive spectrum and where to go next. But, um, yeah i guess it remains to be seen about these particular actors and what their intentions are and if it's just a money grab and stuff like that or if it does move the sport forward but man i want it to work because i'm a fan of the sport and i want this to be one of the next evolutions um what do you think
1: yeah i just i mean i guess like i don't want them to play the game but at the same time i also do want to play it. like i loved watching utmb um, I just wish there was an easier way. Cause like it would be so unfortunate if Jim used his UTMB race to qualify for UTMB. And then he goes into UTMB, not as sharp as he could have been if he just was already in the race, you know, same with Zach Miller. Um, it, it almost seems like it's encouraging over racing in a way, which is not healthy. Um, Cause You know, Jim really made it sound like he would not have opened his season with a hundred mile race because he's never done that before, and that's just not something he's normally done. Um, now he has to put out like two quality hundred miles in a year. It's like how many of these people are just going to like show up to UTMB like a little bit flat because they use their good one in in the spring or early summer. Great point. Yeah. Great. I mean, same argument could then be said for Western states. I guess.
0: Excellent point. Well, I want to ask you this question. I think it kind of relates to Western States. It was a popular thread on Twitter recently. The person asked, should elite level trail races allow pacers? And I think this was asked inside the thread, but should they limit crew support or get rid of it altogether? So a bunch of scenarios and questions in there and take it wherever you want. But I figure it's good to roll it off the back of the Western States discussion. Cause that's such a theme there. Like you have your pacer, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And it's
1: usually always, it's like a little bit of like a, like America's like dog show sort of thing where it's like, who do I get to show off as my pacer? Yep. Like every, like, especially on the elite side, it's like, you just like buddying, like you're like, you know, it's like WWE wrestling when you like tag in someone who's just super legit. And it's like, oh, well they're not going to lose because they have so-and-so. Um, and it's it's fun, um, but I never I never really understood. It. I understand having a pacer from a safety standpoint when it's dangerous. Um, but like being able to pick up a pacer at what Black Canyon City to the finish, I don't see that race from an elite standpoint as having an inherently high level of danger.
0: Well, I was yeah, I was going to ask you, is it always performance enhancing or are there some people that would actually not benefit from having a pacer?
1: People would not benefit from a pacer. Um, and some people might benefit more from having a pacer than that other person who benefits from not having a pacer. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. Um, you know, it's kind of like some people are like, Oh, I can time trial a race solo and hit the same time as if the race was with people. There's a lot of other people out there who would time trial a race and it would be decent. But then when you throw in other people around you, they unlock something new in their brain. And like there's been a lot of studies to show how true that is um, with like people having, you know, closing the last mile of these crazy long races. Super like being able to smell the barn is a real thing. Um, and having someone like a carrot in front of you to chase after for a while, I think that can absolutely benefit you if you're that type of runner. Um, but I've always wondered why for these races where they're not inherently dangerous, like I'm not going to stumble off a cliff at Western States, um, you know, or get, you know, there's not like really a ton of root finding at Western States, like, There's not inclement weather where, like, I might be going hypothermic and then my pacer is like, dude, we got to put a puffy jacket on you. Like, those are the types of scenarios where I totally understand having a pacer. Um, And, you know, and I'm just talking from like an elite field standpoint. So I kind of agree. Um, I agree with the whole not having a pacer thing. I've loved having pacers, I like having pacers. But I understand in a championship style race, I understand not having a pacer. Um, The two years that I ran the UROC 100K when they were in Auburn, if you wanted to be eligible for the prize money, you weren't allowed to have a pacer. You could have a pacer, but then you you forgave your eligibility for the prize money. I could see a scenario like that for Western States. If you are racing for the top 10, you cannot have a pacer. If you have a pacer and then you finish within the top 10, you don't automatically get invited back. I could totally see a scenario like that happening. That's really for, interesting. I could see something like that happening for pacers. Um, Cause I don't think pacers should just get totally dropped at something like Western States. Like I think um, when you're for like, you know, m- like more like middle of the pack, like, I love, I love the memories that I made with my Pacer like Pacers out there because like I've never run the last 20, 30 miles of Western States well and kind of like shutting down the racing side of things and just going and like doing the course and finishing and sharing that with a close friend. Awesome. I love that. um, And especially like, I don't know, I feel like from, from a finishing the race safely standpoint, people on the, you know, elite side, they're more like, they're more trained for it. They've been able to train. They've been able to allocate more time training for the race. Like in my head, at least that lends towards the level of risk that they're taking being a little bit lower. Whereas someone else who's like, you know, 65 years old, full-time job only get to train, you know, from four to five a.m. on the weekdays, and then I get weekends to have these big long runs. Like they're just not coming into the race with as good of prep. Yep. Um, you know, before the, there is a slightly higher inherent level of risk running the race. I understand them taking that pacer, and I don't think that should be pulled from them. But I could totally see at the top end of the field if you want to be in the top ten and get that invite back. No pacers.
0: That's a really interesting proposition.
1: How, how do you feel about pacers in in like if we're talking like Western states?
0: Well, I mean, just because it's immediately on the top of my mind, it was interesting to see the dynamics in the men's and in the women's races at Black Canyon. Keeley Henninger, who won the race and set a course record on the women's side, she was paced by Grace and Murphy, I think, at least the last ten miles of the race. But then, I don't think we saw the first runner pacer pairing on the men's side until I think maybe ninth place when Steven Kirsch and Jared Hazen came through. I should be fact-checked on that. And I'm only mentioning those two examples to say that I think there's not to me a clear advantage in that scenario. I think that there are multiple ways to be successful and there are types of runners that just don't see having someone to guide them or talk with them or just to be present as an advantage, I think to me, the bigger difference maker in all this is the dynamics at an aid station. I think that if you remove the crew from an aid station where some people are so dialed, like they can get in and out of there in like 15 to 30 seconds versus forcing them to you know, walk into the aid station, check in, eat some food off the table, grab a dra- drop bag, sort all that out, make a shoe change, whatever, then get out of there. I think there's a lot more time to be won and lost at those aid stations than there is having somebody with you by your side, covering a certain amount of miles.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could say. Because, I mean, yeah, because your pacer can't do anything anyways other than run with you. You know, anything else is cheating. Can they mule at some races? Leadville. Leadville's- Leadville, yeah. That's like the biggest muling friendly race. Um, But yeah, I think we did talk about this on either like maybe the Western States Post Show or um, one of the Long Run Archives where like my dad and I were talking about this and we were talking about like how- you know, you're not allowed to have any, like some of his bike races that he did. And it was mostly from a safety standpoint. I'm not getting too many people like in and around the roads, no outside support for the races. You can only use the aid stations and the drop bags that you threw down. And I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon to Western States because like crewing trail races is such like a massive, I don't know if it's just like a massive part of our sport, but like, I would love, I would be so interested in what, I would pay more attention to the race day of Western states if there were no crew allowed and you had to be so dialed in on your own um, and you had to pack your drop bags and go off the aid stations and you, it was on you to be fast through the aid stations, not stand there, hold your arms out and have eight people stuff you full eyes. Um, you know, so like I love teamwork. I I really do. That's one of my favorite parts of sport is like teams and people. But to a point, especially like, as we were saying earlier, when you inject more money in the sport, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Like, like Jim, he can, Hoka can buy Jim the best crew for him. He can have two crews. They can schlep in anything he might possibly ever want. You know, he gets to do full frozen shirt changes because they every single person gets set up with a Yeti cooler. Like those sorts of things. Like we're getting to the point in the sport where like if you want to properly crew your, your runner at Western States, 100% like ideally, you need like a couple thousand dollars worth of gear. Um, like you want multiple packs to swap out. You want freaking, I don't know, the best ice just like you could just have the best of everything. And that's going to be better than the average of everything. Like you could have more people, more practice. And I, again, it's like, are we at the crux of the sport? where like, it's about to get out of control and something needs to change.
0: Man. I changed my mind like three times in what you were saying there. Cause at first you talked about the teamwork and then you were like, yeah, it's so cool. You you love watching it too. You love watching it. And then you, and then you talked about Walmsley and how he has every advantage in the book. And I think where I ended, because you stopped with the Walmsley piece, I want, or I, I immediately thought about like, okay, no, we got to level the playing field so that the random ballers still have a place to do some special stuff in our sport. And I think that's where I stand right now. What about, what about the middle? So like at Worlds um, in Thailand, there was only
1: one, I think it was only one person from each country was the aid station like person who crewed for all the runners, like Team USA had one person, Team Italy had one person. What if each runner at Western States only had one person at a time that could help them at an aid station? So like, you come into Robinson Flat, you could help me as my crew. Like, There could be 15 people there, but you're the only one that can help me at the aid station. And then moving on to the next person, it doesn't necessarily have to be you, but it just has to be the person with my bib number is like badge. Like there can only be one person helping me per aid station, you know, for crew. That would help,
0: I feel like. Now I'm curious. Now I want to ask Leah what her experience was like at Worlds this past November in that format.
1: Yeah, and it's even trickier for someone like Worlds because we're having like one person needing to know what's, well, how many people were there? 10, 12 people yeah. racing the eighty k. That's one person being able to dial that in, like, that's hard. Um, That's very difficult. But, like, I think it would level the playing field out a little bit if every runner at Western States could only have one crew member assisting them at the aid stations at any given point. Finn, did we just just get ourselves hired
0: to be on the board of Western States? (laughs) Well, I got to say, I feel... I just put this tweet out about the whole golden ticket system and I did not mean to necessarily... Are you tweeting in real time? No, no. This or is, is this like two hours for the episode. Oh, so, okay. I uh, <laughs> I hope the Western States team knows that I am a super fan of the race and I was just asking a question purely out of curiosity, but um, yeah, you can go check it out after this recording. It's gaining, it's gaining a lot of commentary, positive and negative, and I hope I did not... Open up a Pandora's box.
1: What was the tweet? Are we going into this?
0: It was about. Um, it was the one about Anthony Costalas sponsorship status, getting your way into Western states, etc.
1: Yeah. Oh. Is this going to surpass your hundred miles as the only relevant distance and trail?
0: Oh, man, I don't know. I think I feel like that's not even going to come close. It won't come close because that one captured a whole broad swath of people. These are just the people that care deeply about Western states, which I think, or I'd guess is a smaller subset.
1: Your Anton quote, that might have even gotten on like Elon Musk's radar.
0: Um, Can we come back to this live stream topic? I want to bring it back up uh, because, oh, sorry. Well, okay. To back up, I had said, you know, there might be some interesting content opportunities for these runners who aren't having their best days, they're DNFing, they're bonking, etc., And they can use some of that content from the stream to bring back to their brands and their audiences. And it's like, you know, them showing their vulnerability and their realness and just like being in the arena. And that could potentially be as good from a content marketing standpoint as like, you know, having success or winning stuff like that. Anyways, I liked what you said there about how actually there is a dark side to that exposure and you know there's no way to like privately have a bad day anymore so can we kick start that conversation back up because i have some other things i want to talk about on the live stream thread as well okay go on (laughs) proceed (laughs) (laughs) permission permission
1: granted (laughs) you may proceed
0: (laughs) i really want to see in a future edition of the live stream whether it's at Havelina later this year or whenever in the future the opportunity to mic up runners from start to finish you and i are both fans of the nfl hard knocks all that kind of stuff there's all sorts of films out there where you know warren Sapp on the raiders is mic'd up for a bunch of plays and you know he's trying to push the offensive tackle back into the quarterback and get a sack and that's cool and it brings you closer to the experience do you think That would be a value add in running to mic one of these athletes up. It could be a runner in the front of the pack and pull clips, you know, their self-talk and their interactions with aid stations and other competitors and make a montage out of that. I mean, wouldn't
1: it just be like a whole bunch of hours of heavy breathing and like occasional grunting and like swearing?
0: I mean, that's where these grade A content creators out of Hoka and Ultra can pull only the most memorable moments from those eight hours and consolidate it all into a reel or something
1: that's like as putting myself in the shoes of like hoka's intern who's now just been tasked to listen to like (laughs) 500 hours of heavy breathing and to like make sure to clip all the good swears oh dude i i feel so bad for the intern that gets that job
0: (laughs) what if there was some sort of (laughs) i know seriously um what if there is like you know, they turn the mic on strategically at certain times in the race. And that is when the runner is expected to contribute some self-talk or engagement with another runner or they're at an aid station. So that way it's easier to filter out, you know, a lot of the bullshit or the downtime, stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. Like I would love to see like a crew with a whole bunch of boom mics that are directly over every single runner and their crew when they come into aid stations. Um, an opportunity for a great mic mic'd up, uh, I don't know, situation is a uh, bath road to Forest Hill when many of the elite, elite athletes will run with their crew for a mile. Like if their crew member was just mic'd up and then got to pick up just like the the recap of the canyons, um, that would be a great spot. Um, but then, yeah, just the, cause you know, you, you, you see the video of elite athletes with their crew in like Michigan bluff forest hill. But if you could stick the microphone in between all of them and get like, cause the runners they are talking quietly at that point. Cause they don't want everyone to know like, Oh yeah, I just threw up like 25 minutes ago. Like they don't want to publicly announce that to the competitors around there at the field. Like, I feel like shit. I just puked. Nothing's working. But they're saying that to their crew, and if there was a microphone right there in the middle of that, at every single crew spot for every crew from the elite field, and like the live stream got to hear it, oh man, that would be juicy. Or if like, well, okay, Pacers are back. Allowed, they're allowed again. Miking up a pacer, or at least have them hold the stuff, you know, because like like Road does a couple like uh, wireless lapel mics. That are pretty good but like they have to transmit back to a base that's like a perfect thing for the pacer to be holding and then for their actual racer to have it clipped somewhere inconspicuous if that's even possible
0: and by the way the reason I ask all this is because you put an excellent question into our word doc which is for ultras what is more important in a live stream environment good audio or good video what will fans pay attention to more and I mean I'll give you my answer or my initial answer off the bat. I think in the current era, it has to be good audio because I think the technology isn't quite there yet to totally tell the story of what's happening on the ground in full. And that's where audio needs to fill the gaps. Like we have all sorts of conversations when we're in the booth that are independent of the race to help pass the time and, you know, get consumers, viewers, people in the live chat from point A to point B. Um, because in a video environment, if we were going like video first, I think we would need more drone close ups on the packs of runners as opposed to being way overhead. I think we'd need multiple drones at aid stations that can cover multiple shots, like what we talked about earlier in the post race interview setup with Leah and Corinne talking to those runners. There were multiple cameras there, multiple angles covering just the interview piece. I talked about miking up runners earlier. So I think we need a similar camera quality in the field too. And so until that improves. It's got to be audio first.
1: I just like blew my own mind here. Um, That's kind of basically how it's worked from like a, you know, industrial revolution onwards sort of thing. Like you read the stories first, then radio came out and you listened to them and then TV came out and you watched them. We went from Twitter and we're trying to go straight to TV. We're trying to skip the audio and we're just struggling a little bit. Like I think, you know, and I'm sure it won't last like 50 years, like listening to baseball games on the radio, but I, I agree. I think there's perhaps a period of time in the sport, like right around now where there will be a limited video, but there could potentially be something very good to listen to all the time. And that was a lot of feedback that I got from the band and black Canyon live streams was that a lot of, and also the races are long. Like it's hard to just like stare at a TV for 15 hours um, or even 10 hours. You know, that's a long time, but you could, a lot of my friends like text me. They're like, yeah, it was nice. Cause I could turn the live stream on and the video is going in the background, but I'm doing other things, but I'm listening to the commentary that's going on. And they basically tell me, all right, quit doing what you're doing. Time to watch for 30 or 40 minutes. And like, they got the cues from us broadcasters to basically tell them when to t- when to chime in and when not but for the most part they were then always listening to us being like oh yeah that's interesting yeah yeah there's this but then we're like oh my gosh we have just gotten word like we just got drone you know aerial footage that um eden nilson heather jackson Keeley Heninger, they all just crossed the river before table mesa and they are legitimately all together we start getting excited like that that's the cue that the consumer should probably start watching again. Um, And it was kind of like those interactions that I heard about that made me think about how valuable um, like full-time audio for these races actually, actually kind of is.
0: Yep. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like if we're predicting what the distribution of pure raw video coverage and audio from the field is versus the stuff that we contribute from the studio i wonder if as the tech improves our roles as hosts will decline and will become more conversationalist and more facilitators for the audio that's coming from aid stations from runners from sideline reporters like let's just say that our amount of audio in the studio is like 90 percent of the coverage right now i wonder if it's more like 20 to 25 percent of the total coverage five to ten years from now just because of all the cool stuff you can capture organically from the field.
1: Yeah. Well and or just us chiming in little bits and pieces of color commentary. Um yep. as as we are also listening to what's going on. Um you know, I've seen that happen. There's uh there's a, a handful of like pretty big like I don't know like Twitch streams, YouTube lives where like it would be basically like watching this podcast on YouTube right now. Yeah. except we're live and you and I are watching the race and we're just talking about it like that exists in F1 that exists in cycling that exists on Monday night football with Peyton and Eli on ESPN Peyton and Eli yeah um, does does our sport grow to a point where people now get to pick and choose different audio streams that they want to listen to about a
0: race we were actually talking about this on Sunday. I mean, I grew up watching baseball and I would tune into Nesson to watch the Red Sox and I would actually mute Jerry Remy and Don Orsillo and I would tune on the W E E I Red Sox radio network. And I would listen to Joe Castiglione and Jerry Truppiano on the radio call the game while watching it live on the TV. And yeah, there was that annoying tape delay. Like you would hear, um, the radio announcers make a call before it happened in the video, but I, I deliberately chose the two different mediums because um, the combined product on the TV just wasn't sufficient.
1: Yeah, and I've done that for like some Tour de France stages uh, because the like the commentating that I found uh, from other you know mediums was more entertaining, or they were allowed to say things that the cable network broadcasters might not allowed to, you know, they might not be allowed to say, right. So then right. you got like an even more in-depth uh, viewpoint on what's going on right now. Or they would talk about like even some of the finer nuances of what's happening. Um. And then, and then, you, you know, then people get to kind of really pick and choose like what style of commentating they want to listen to or like, you want to hear someone just like really go into the like fine detail nitty gritty of like everything that's going on or like you want like the bigger picture you know like like a little more like intro kind of beginner type commentating or we go in like full advanced uh and i think there's just you know there's this place for all those different types of commentating for races
0: especially some of these long ones i was um I was scanning social media after the live stream. And it occurred to me that there are at least three types of consumers. There were the people that had YouTube premium and they were just putting their phones in their pocket and they went about their day, walking their dog, doing chores, going on their run and they consume the auto only. Then there was this other group that would literally set up like base camp in their living room and they had the live stream on their big screen TV and they were just like in for the ride for 12 hours. And then you had this other group that would check in like every one to two hours and we would see them pop into the live chat saying things like, you know, who's in third place. And, you know, they wanted progressive summarization of the event. And I wonder if like over time we'll see three different live stream offerings for consumers in the coming years. Like there will be a version that's catered primarily to the audio group, a version primarily to that like living room theater group and a version that just wants like a 20 minute YouTube synopsis of, what just happened in the last three hours. And I know, you know, you and I have talked about the latter, so I think that would be especially cool.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I think some of these races are nearly there where they can add that and like, you know, clip together a highlight reel from the first half of the race and throw it up to YouTube for people to watch as they're tuning into the second half of the race, they can get caught up, you know, like that, that's a thing like that exists. Like we go to the halftime show in a football game and right before the halftime show, we see a whole bunch of highlights from the first half. Like all that stuff just happened and they were able to clip it all together and make an amazing highlight reel. We're not too far away from that in this in trail and ultra running. We're like, we can get a highlight reel up to, you know, uh, like soap Creek aid station and then a highlight reel through, you know, Black Canyon city and a highlight reel through table Mesa. And then everyone's tuned into the finish.
0: hundred percent. Um, any other live stream thoughts? I,
1: not at the moment. I'm sure there's always going to be something that pops up, but like, I'm excited again, just still excited to be in the wild West of, of live streaming for these races. I, I still believe that we need to continue to lean into the fan engagement. Um, cause it's so fun. You know, like is, again, it was a blast with black Canyon and it's, it's just a unique side of the sport where there was like famous people in the chat and just regular fans of the sport in the chat. They're all in the same chat. They're all chiming in and we got to read it and talk about it. And that's just so unique. And I think that's something really special about the sport. And I think that's something we need to continue to lean
0: into. I couldn't agree more. And, um, the only regret that I have from Black Canyon and I'm going to I'm going to make this joke at my own expense but like when we did the Bandera coverage the whole audience knew from our pre-race episode that I made an absolutely stupid pick not having Courtney win the race and they just went after me in the live chat and like that did come at my own expense but it was great because it was it was a permission to start an awesome conversation in the chat and I wish there was a bit more of that in Black Canyon like I wish there was you know, more of the fans that just knew that if they wanted to, like they could co-commentate and make points and ask questions and start debates. It was there if they wanted to, it was awesome to see, of course, you know, the fans that the fan clubs that emerged, like the ones for Meg Morgan and Heather Jackson. I feel like Dan Green, this Dan Green guy had like that massive contingent over in West Virginia, but I totally agree with you that like this, this relationship between the hosts and the reporters and the live chat can be really in depth and and fun in so many ways. Absolutely. Um I'm looking at our list now. I know we're close to the two hour mark. We have enough content in this doc to fill an entire separate episode. Do you want to just do one more? Yeah, let's let's do one more. Okay. This uh you might have an obvious answer to this one, but Heather Jackson versus John Ranieri, triathlete versus marathoner. Maybe this isn't a good example because Heather Jackson just got second place at this race, and I think John Ranieri didn't even make it, or I think he had to drop out at Black Canyon City. But in general, they both come from you know, one comes from the marathoning world, one comes from the triathlon world, Iron Man, Iron Woman world. Generally speaking, which sport do you think is better suited to produce a successful? ultra marathoner okay um
1: should we just like both say our sport on three
0: <laughs> yeah ready Three, one, two. Oh, geez oh sorry ready one two three iron man both oh
1: <laughs> i i was I'm, I'm heavily on the fence between both or neither Okay. But I don't want to say it. neither. I it. say I say both because they both have pros and cons. Neither of which I say guarantee. Oh, so and so is going to be amazing at trails. Um, the big pro of coming from an Ironman background is, uh, the, the races are long. You know, they're eight plus hours. That's huge. When you're coming from a marathon, your race is only two, two and a half hours that makes going up to like something like black Canyon, in an eight hour race. If you're at the top of the men's field, that's a huge element. Like Heather Jackson has already conquered that element of racing for that long. Um, but one thing that the marathoner has that someone like Heather Jackson isn't is just pure running training, you know, Heather's juggling swimming and biking and in an Ironman biking's I think most people say it's the most important part because it's the longest leg. So you better get good at biking. That doesn't necessarily translate that well to being good at running. You know, what you get is a big engine aerobically, but like there's just really not much of a guarantee that like you'll be good at running trail or like running more. Um, I would be curious what some of the like more pure triathletes who are listening might chime in and say, but like maybe, maybe there is something to having swam, for a while and then biked hundred miles and then still being able to throw down a pretty good marathon. Maybe that says something to like fatigue resistance in terms of late stages in the race. I don't know if I buy that because neither of the first two legs of a triathlon are pounding. You don't get that muscular damage that you just get from pure running. So then going back to the marathon side, you get, you know, like John Ranieri, very fast marathoner. Like he's accustomed to putting his body through 120, 130 mile weeks, Um, So logging big training hours while running, that also can supply evidence that maybe they will be able to transition to trails because they're already able to handle that cumulative high time on feet from a training standpoint. Sometimes that translates to then being able to do it in a single day. But that's kind of why I say both because... I think really what, what I think that, are you a talented athlete? That's like my biggest prereq for uh, like, can you be good at running? Like, like, are you, do you like running? That's a good question. Yeah. Some people like racing marathons. They don't even like running that much. They just happen to be good at it. I think for a hundred miles, you have to you very damn well better like running. Cause you're about to go run a hundred miles. Like you better love it. You better love how much it sucks and how hard it is. Um, just racing off of pure competition and like competitiveness alone. I don't think that's good enough for a hundred miles. I think it is good enough for marathon and shorter. Um, so there's still just like a lot of questions, but I don't think if someone wins an Ironman or someone wins the Olympics in the marathon, I don't think that automatically means they're going to be a great like trail ultra marathon runner.
0: I think the reason why I went Iron Man, Iron Woman, is because you mentioned that the events are longer than the marathon event. So, you know, it's, it's not out of there. It's not new to their psyche to be out there for eight to 10 hours or more. And then also they're used to, uh, you know, week after week, year after year, uh, massive training load. So, you know, because of the bike, the swim and the run all combined, it's probably not unordinary for them to be doing 25 to 35 hours of training a week. So like the workload is there. And I think, but then what
1: about just like an elite, what about an elite cyclist or an elite Nordic skier? Do we get to talk about those sports too? Like, I think Nordic skiing might so far have the best, uh, transfer success rate or schemo. like dude. And that's
0: just, that's an athlete with a big engine. Spot on. I, I would put Nordic and schema versus marathoning. No questions asked in those scenarios. Nordic and schema, both over marathoning. Um, yeah. By the way, I looked at Heather Jackson this past weekend. Like she's 38 years old. She's coming off, I, I think, around 15 years of hard, uh, tra- I mean, hard racing. Sorry, hard training and racing. And she's. I would say objectively past her prime. And yet she came into our sport and almost won the Black Canyon 100K and almost set a course record. So in doing all that, probably not at the height of her power. So a part of me wonders, like if she had entered the sport when she was 25, would she be like the Killian um, or the Walmsley or, you know, the Francois of the women's side at, you know, these types of events? I don't know. So there's so many optimistic questions I have about her career. Like what could have been if she had started earlier in this sport. And I say all that with the expectation that like, she could be good in this sport for the next 10 years. How much of being past your prime is like,
1: just getting bored with what you're doing. Like if Heather Jackson was like one of the best trail runners in the world at 25 and then going to 38, who's to say Heather's like, I'm going to try, I'm going to try an Ironman. Like, what if it's just like in this other universe, she just switches to Ironman because she's like, well, I've done, tra- I've been trail running so long. or you, know, I'm going to try and run the marathon or what if how much, yeah. Like what if burnout's just you being so good at the same thing and doing it for so long that you just like, don't have that fire anymore. Like, I think Heather is going to have some great trail races because it's new. It's new and exciting. You're learning. It's fun again. Like she goes and runs an Iron or races an Ironman. She knows what's going to happen. Yep,
0: yep. Yeah, I think part of it is certainly interest and motivation. I think the other obvious part is like father time is undefeated.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: You could love the sport. You could hate the sport. You could be tired of the sport. You could be, you know, on the rise of the sport. But at the end of the day, you know, the wheels are only going to spin at a certain rate that you're used to or that you want to get out of yourself for so long.
1: Yeah, maybe uh, I was say maybe Heather understands that ultra running is still a very big aerobic and like mental sport that she's like, I know I can actually push my prime a couple years further by switching sports.
0: I'm just, I'm just so impressed that somebody in their late thirties is like, I would already classify them as one of the best ultra runners, ultra trail runners in our sport. Totally. And like, and I think this'll be the year that she solidifies that. Yeah. And like, yeah,
1: it's 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 almost too bad that we really only kind of have like a sample size of one, because um, like it would be really cool to see someone else like just plop their way right over. Like like huge kudos to John Ranieri for, um, like there there actually were a few, but like there it, there hasn't like John said that he was using Black Canyon to basically make the marathon not feel as long or like not necessarily feel as hard. So it was like still keeping his foot in the marathon door. Um, So it's like not quite the same as Heather Jackson being like, I'm going all in on being a professional ultra trail athlete now. Yep. Um, You know, Ryan Raff, he was another interesting story in the men's race, um, like fresh off of an NCAA team title at NAU this past November, then going like, throwing down at Black Canyon. Um, I hope that he tries again and continues to go more in, like lean heavier into the trail. Um, And John too. Yeah, yeah. I hope hope that John just decides after this, was like, wow, that was so much harder than I thought it would be. I have to try that again. I'm done being a professional marathoner. I'm going all in on trail because I want to, you know, I, I got a bone to pick with that one. I would love to see that scenario. I think that would be so cool
0: with, with Heather Jackson. It makes me wonder like, what would it take to get a Lionel Sanders to try out an ultra trail event, a Tim O'Donnell, a Sarah true. Um, I can't think of Tim's partner's name, but, uh, she's Miranda Carfrey. I think like all those triathlon stars, like what would it take to get them in here for a race?
1: Dude, what would it take to get Eliud Kipchoge to run a (laughs) trail ultra? I guess he's interested.
0: Yeah, I know. He's
1: always talked about, yeah, he wants to see how far he can go. Um, But yeah, I mean, I would love to see like a, you remember that show MTV Made where they take people who like don't do things and then they just work at it for a while and they see how good they get. It's like the sporting equivalent of that, but like not totally stupid where it's just like we take someone from an endurance sport and then throw them in another endurance sport and see how good they get over the course of like a couple of years. Like, can we have that?
0: Seriously? Well, man, this has been an awesome long run archives. I feel like we covered a lot of good ground. I even changed my mind in this episode. You convinced me that crowd so uh, crowdsourcing um, or increasing registration costs to fund a prize purse is a bad idea. And, I agree. So minds can be changed.
1: Good. I'm glad we, glad we were able to change your mind on that one. How many miles did people get in over the course of this one?
0: If you're John Ranieri, you got 21 or 22 miles in. Um, If you're here in the Wasatch and you're trail running, I feel like 11 to 12 miles is pretty solid day with this snowpack.
1: Yeah. I want to hear, I want to hear how many miles you got. I also want to hear how much vert you got well, I I don't need to know how much time you got because you got this much time. But like, yeah, you're right. Like it could be a how many miles did you get during this run or how much did you climb and descend over the course of this run? That might be like our our long run archives, like end of episode question. Like,
0: all right, can I tease as a sign off? Can I tease one of the questions for our next long run? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm going to read this out has the running culture spanning all the way back to the high school systems groomed runners to figuratively play nice or play ball or play passively with their career prospects and as a response should runners be embracing the prefontaine spirit here question mark do we need more runners like that who fight for radical change when it comes to making a living in the sport question mark that'll be one of them and i think i'm going to get schooled by brett on this one in the history of running. So it's going to be good. I've
1: got, i got so much written down.
0: Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the single track podcast.